You can be turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This morning we begin our series that will, if my calculations are correct, will last up into October. So we'll be in here for a few months. And I have to say that as I prepared for this series and continue to prepare for this series, it is a daunting task because the book of Ecclesiastes really is one of the hardest books of the Bible to interpret just because of the sheer language that the author chooses to write with. But aside from all of those things, the core message that we are going to continually see over and over again is so worth it. It is so worth us digging in and struggling and striving to know what the author of Ecclesiastes has to say, what he has to contribute to the saints. Now before we get started, I meant to mention this earlier in my announcements. This book that I'm holding in my hand is written by David Gibson and it's titled Living Life Backward, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. And now I know that all of Christendom was doing just fine before David Gibson wrote this book. It's not going to change all of Christianity. But I will say that it is a marvelous, it is wonderful, and it is definitely worth reading for sure. So this book is now part of our library. It's going to be at the back on display. So please check this book out. If you want to have a better understanding besides just what I'm going to say about Ecclesiastes, then tune in to what David Gibson has to say. And also, I leaned pretty heavily on his work on Ecclesiastes. So that book will be in the back for your help. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's look together and read God's Word to us. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear the Word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and as we approach this, this towering and massive book, Ecclesiastes, Father, we come and we seek your help. There is no way that we are going to be able to understand the message of Ecclesiastes if you do not open our minds, our eyes, and our ears to see it, to accept it, to grab hold of it, and to take joy in it. So I ask that you would do that now, Father, that you would come and that you would help me to speak with words of clarity, to interpret your word well. May you be with my mind and my mouth and my heart as I seek to preach this, this text with passion and with 
sound doctrine. And may you be with those who are listening. May you open their eyes. May you open their ears. May you open their hearts. May you help them as over the course of the next few months we are going to be seeing hard things, Lord. There are hard things for us to accept in this book. But oh, may we see that in Christ we can. And we can receive the gift that is here for us. So may you come in power, in the power of your Holy Spirit. May you fill us and may you enable us to delight in your word. May you enable us to delight in your Son who shines brightly through these pages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That is what some people say when they consider the world in which we live. They look out at the world and see all the horrible things happening and think to themselves, this just seems so meaningless. What is the point of living? They may ask themselves. What is the point of me having a life in this harsh and unforgiving world? And you may have experienced thoughts like that yourself at one point or another. You may have thought along the same lines. You may have looked out into the world and saw all of the horrible things that happen on a day-to-day basis and thought to yourself, why am I here? Why has God given me this life to live in such a broken and unforgiving world? We face things like natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanic eruptions, flooding, and diseases that plague the nations and kill thousands upon thousands. Then there are the things that we as a human race do to ourselves and to each other. We hurt each other, either with our words or physically. We steal from one another. We hate one another. We murder one another. We lie, cheat, rape, torture. And then sometimes we commit suicide when we've had enough and we want a way out. And that's just a short list of all of the horrible and horrific things that happen in our world on a day-to-day basis. Now most of you, if not all of you, are aware that before I became the pastor here at Alts Chapel, I was a fireman. And I was a fireman for three short years. It's not a very long span of time. But in those three years, I saw horrible things happen to people every day. And if I wasn't on the scene of the call watching them play out literally before my eyes, I sat in a station that had an intercom station, had an intercom system that constantly throughout the day broadcasted all of the emergencies that were going on. And so if I wasn't making the call, I was hearing friends of mine and family make those calls. So I either watched them or I listened to them happen. I remember one instant, just for an example. So the first real funeral that I did, I guess you could say, as I was preparing to be a pastor, I listened to the tragic event happen over the radio. 
I wasn't at the scene. I didn't work the call, but I sat in the station. I heard the guys go to the call, and then probably about midnight that night, I received a call from a family member of mine saying that his father had died. His father was the one that was... He was the one that they went to go respond to. He had died in his vehicle. So that's just an example of some of the things that I listened to in my short amount of time as being a fireman. And that's just in Washita Parish, brothers and sisters. Washita Parish, Louisiana. I think last year, if I remember correctly, our call rate was like 9,000-something. That's just in Washita Parish. That's just in the community that we live in. Think about worldwide. Think about if you had an intercom system in your house that broadcasted 24-7 all of the emergencies and all of the tragic events that went on, and you just listened to it all day. That's all you heard. I see Rhonda shaking her head. and I mean, you would be depressed, would you not? I mean, it would literally just make you feel like what we were talking about. Why am I here? Why do I have to look and watch all of these things happen? So it's no wonder that some people look at the world and say things like meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What is the point of my life in this broken world? Now this is also the way that some people approach this book. That's how some people approach the book of Ecclesiastes. They, they read its pages and they see nothing but a man who has become depressed because he has stared at the world for far too long and has lost his senses because of it. They, they put him on the same level of a madman, I guess you could say. He's become depressed. He's, he's watched the world for far too long and he just like some of the atheists of our day. A lot of the atheists of our day, not all of them, but they have become atheists because they've looked into the world and they've seen horrible, tragic events happen. And they say to themselves, there's no way that a loving God in heaven could be sovereign and I watch these things happen on a daily basis. And so they therefore come up with scientific reasons that explain, so-called explain, the existence of why you are here and why the world exists. But that's not the point. That's not the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes is not a man who has abandoned meaning in the world. No, he's a man who has in fact been led by the wisdom of God and has learned for himself where true meaning is found. And within this book, he seeks to share his wisdom and his experience with all those who will listen. He seeks to show us lasting joy and to show us where true meaning is found in this fallen and sinful and broken world. He seeks to show us how God intends for us to live east of Eden. And I use that language because when Adam and Eve sinned and God kicked them out of the garden, He, he cast them out east of Eden. So that just means east of Eden, referring to the broken and sinful world. So God intends for us, through the book of Ecclesiastes, to learn how to live east of Eden. 
So who is, who is this author? Who is the, the author of such a strange and, and puzzling book? Well, first and foremost, we must understand that no matter how strange, no matter how puzzling this book may be, the Holy Spirit is first and foremost its author. The Holy Spirit is the author of Ecclesiastes. This book is Holy Spirit breathed, and it therefore has God's authoritative stamp upon it. So when you read these words in Ecclesiastes, you are reading what God has to say to you. You are ultimately reading God's words to you. You are reading His words. Now, the one who penned these words, the the human author who penned these words, is believed to be King Solomon. And what I mean by human author is is He is the one whom the Holy Spirit has spoken through. The Holy Spirit has spoken through the words of King Solomon that we find here. That's what I mean by the human author. All of Scripture is breathed out first and foremost by God, but it is also written by human beings whom God has chosen to communicate His Word. So King Solomon is the one who is believed to pen the words of Ecclesiastes. And although he never identifies himself plainly, he instead calls himself the preacher. And we see that in verse 1. He says, the words of the preacher. And that's how he identifies himself throughout the book. But even though he doesn't explicitly tell us that he wrote these words, there are enough clues throughout the book that point to him being the authorship. There are enough clues here that I believe, and I think there's a strong argument for it, that point to Solomon's authorship. So let's just look at a few of these quickly. So not only do we see uh, the words of the preacher in verse 1, but the very next thing that he says is the son of David king in Jerusalem. So we know that the author of this book was a son of David. And we also know that he was a king in Jerusalem. So we've narrowed it down to that. He is a son of David and he's a king of Jerusalem. So what's some more criteria that the author himself lays out within Ecclesiastes? Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16, the preacher says that he has acquired great great wisdom that has surpassed all who were before him. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he says that he is a king, he is a son of David, who has acquired wisdom like no other. Now who does that bring to mind when you read words like that? It brings Solomon, right? Also in chapter 2, the preacher lists off all of these great accomplishments that he's had in his life, all of these great projects that he's built within his time as being king. Now again, who does that bring to mind when you read those words? King Solomon. 
Because King Solomon had the most prosperous reign out of all of the kings in Jerusalem. Because if you remember, it was God Himself who gave Solomon this gift. And we find that in 1 Kings chapter 3. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we read the story. The author of 1 Kings writes, he says, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Asked for what? He asked for wisdom. Remember, God came to him in this vision, in this dream, and He asked him, What would you have me do for you, Solomon? And Solomon says, Give me a discerning mind. Give me wisdom so that I know how to lead this overwhelming people. He asked for wisdom. And God says, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days." So after we consider those truths and that criteria that the author gives, I think that it's a pretty strong argument to say in light of that that King Solomon is the author of this book. Now another objection that comes against his authorship, and it's an important one, and it's one that we need to consider, is how can Solomon, who towards the end of his life turned away from the Lord, you remember he was led astray by the many wives that he had acquired for himself. So how could a man like that write such a book as this? How could he, who turned away from the Lord at one part of his life, write a book like this? And that's a good argument. Now, most scholars believe, and throughout church history, theologians say that Yes, Solomon, towards the end of his life, turned away from the Lord. The author of First King writes that, and also First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles it may be, writes in a, and tells the story of Solomon going astray from the Lord. But what has been accepted over church history, and I think it's a good argument, is that at the very end of his life, after Solomon begins to reflect on his failures as king and the ways that he has gone astray, still having wisdom that the Lord has given him, he reflects on those things and he writes Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. It's his memoir, as you could say. So he writes it for the people of Israel to learn from his mistakes. And he also appeals as the, at the end of the book, as we're going to see, to his son. So that is what I think is going on here as far as the authorship, but if you disagree with me, that's fine. But at the end of the day, as we said, God wrote this book. It is Holy Spirit-breathed and it is authoritative. So moving on, why does, why does Solomon call himself the preacher? Why does he give himself the name preacher? Now, just to prepare you, we're about to dig into this word a good bit. And I want you to hang with me because 
what we're going to find that this word means is critical for seeing the tone of this book. The tone that Solomon is seeking to speak in. So let's look at it. The preacher. The title that Solomon gives himself. Why? Why the preacher? What does preacher mean? What is he trying to... What image is he trying to create in our minds by saying preacher? Well, the Hebrew word that is used here is kohelet. And what it means is collector, gatherer, or one who assembles a people together. So it literally means one who assembles a people together. And by using this word, Solomon's not just bringing to mind just any people. He's talking about the assembly of God, God's people. Because the word Kohelet is closely related to the word Kahal. And the word Kahal is the word that is used for God's assembly in the Old Testament. Most of the time, more often than not, when the word Kahal is used, it is always in reference to God's people. And also, when the word is translated into the Greek language, what we find in the New Testament, it's translated into ecclesia. And you may remember that word because we looked at that word a few weeks ago when we talked about what a church is, right? The word church in Greek is ecclesia and it also stands for and is often used in reference to God's assembly, the people of God. And that's also what the title of Ecclesiastes means. Ecclesiastes is the translation, the Greek translation of the word Kohelet. Now I know that's a lot, but hang with me and just chew on it for a little while because when you read the title Ecclesiastes, it literally means Kohelet, the assembler, the gatherer. And it's in reference to the people of God. So Solomon is showing us that he is an assembler, a gatherer of God's people. So you could think of him in a way as a pastor of a church, right? He is seeking to pastor and to shepherd God's people. And this is critical to understand because Solomon's not gathering the people of God together just to give them some new ideas. He's not gathering them together to give them some new facts or some new form of philosophy. No, he's gathering them together to lead them, to shepherd them in the wisdom of God, which is what the king of Israel was supposed to do. That was his responsibility given by God. The king of Israel was to be an under-shepherd underneath the shepherding of God Himself. And if you remember, we see this best represented represented in King Solomon's reign because of the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. If you remember, He shepherded the people in that wisdom. The, the nation of Israel had its most prosperous and most peaceful peaceful reign in Solomon's time. And if you remember the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she couldn't believe the wealth and the wisdom 
and the peace that had been ushered in through the reign of King Solomon. So she travels up to Israel and seeks this wisdom to see if it is true, which is the whole point of the nation of Israel. Remember, they were to be a light shining in a dark place. They were to see the prosperity of the nation of Israel. And they were to come and to seek, how is this possible? And therefore God got the glory. Israel put God on display in that way. So that is what we are to be having in our minds as we read the, the title of the preacher. We are to see shepherd. Solomon is seeking to shepherd the people in the wisdom of God. And he's seeking to shepherd them, to pastor them in the wisdom that ultimately comes from the one true shepherd, which he says in chapter 12, verse 11. He says, all wisdom comes from the one shepherd. It comes from God. And it is that kind of wisdom that the preacher seeks to lead the people in. He seeks to lead you. He seeks to lead me in the true way. He seeks to lead us in the God-intended way of living. Now what is this preacher, what is this pastor, what does Pastor Solomon, I guess we could say, what does Pastor Solomon have to say to this people? Well, he tells us in verse 2. He says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's how the preacher begins his sermon, you could say. Now that's a heck of a way to start out a sermon, is it not? So what does he mean? What does he mean by saying all is vanity? Now again, in the past... Good intended people have translated this word to mean meaningless. That Solomon is bringing about the idea that everything in this world since the fall is is just meaningless. There's no point. But I want to argue this morning that that's not what he means. And let's look at a few reasons why. So again, let's, let's hone in on this word vanity that he uses. What does the word mean? <clears throat> well, the word vanity that Solomon uses is the Hebrew word havel. And what havel means is literally mist or vapor or mere breath. That's what the literal word of havel means. That's what its literal meaning is. And it's used five times just in this verse. Just in this verse. In verse 2 it's used five times. Throughout the book, Solomon's going to use it 38 times. So this man is serious about the word vanity. He's serious about using the word havel. So we need to work in understanding what he's trying to accomplish, what he's trying to create in our minds when we read it. So let's look at a few passages where it's also used throughout the Bible. Now the first two passages that I want us to look at the word is used as it is here, as breath. But then the third passage that we're going to look at, it's translated in a different way, and I want us to see why. So the first passage is Psalm 39, verse 5. The psalmist writes, Behold, you have 
made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. He says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. The word havel is used there. Mere breath. Again in Psalm 144, verse 4, the psalmist writes, Man is like a breath, using the word havel. His days are like a passing shadow. So the word is used there to bring about the picture that your life is just short. It's like a breath. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And so it's translated as breath because that's the context that the author is using it in. But now let's look at Jeremiah. How does Jeremiah use the word havel? In chapter 2, verse 5, he says this. He says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? The word havel is used there. And then he says, And became worthless. Now, throughout the book of Jeremiah, he uses this word havel, and it's often translated as idol. And that happens again and again and again. The word is translated either as worthlessness, as we see here, or it's translated as idol. Now, why? Well, again, let's consider the context of what Jeremiah is writing in. Why is he writing? Who is he writing to? What is the purpose of his writing? Well, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah was constantly confronting the people of Israel because they had gone after idolatry. They had gone after idols, idol worship, and they had forsaken the Lord. So Jeremiah is trying to get across to the people, yes, you have gone astray to temporary things. That's what an idol is. It's like breath. It's temporary. It's going to pass away. It's not real. It has no real lasting significance. But the reason why it's translated as worthlessness is that's because what Jeremiah is trying to get across to his audience. He's trying to get across that you have turned to worthless things. And so the translators translate the word havel as worthlessness in that context and in other places as idols. So all of that to say that we must consider how our words are used and in the context that they are used. Now quickly, a couple of other reasons why I don't think that the preacher means meaningless. One, in other parts of this book, he says some things are better than others. Now, if everything is meaningless and it's worthless, how can something be better than something else. It's all meaningless, right? It really doesn't matter. But he says things like, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, in chapter 6, he says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. And then in chapter 7, the preacher is going to name off a few different things that are better than other things. So again, he's not trying to show us that everything is meaningless. Also, five different times, this is the the second thing, the second argument, five different times within the book, 
the preacher is going to, he's just going to stop and he's going to, to say something like, after he's considered all of these things of vanity, he's going to say, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So now that doesn't sound like somebody that's trying to show the people of God that everything is meaningless. So if he's not trying to purvey meaningless, then what is he saying? What what is he trying to communicate by saying that everything is like a breath? Well, he's literally trying to communicate what the word means. He's trying to show you, he's trying to show us that your life is literally like a mere breath. It's like a vapor. It's fleeting. It's here one moment and then it's gone the next. David Gibson in his his book, he writes, it's like a puff of smoke. And he illustrates uh, a candle being put out. If you've ever put out a candle, you know what I'm talking about. You quench the wick and a puff of smoke comes up and then it's gone. Like that. Your life. So the next time you put out a candle, your life is like the smoke that comes off the candle. It's here one moment and then it's gone. You know, it's, it's, it's real. The smoke is there and in a way you can touch it, you can see it. But at the same time, it's fleeting. It's elusive. It constantly evades you. So that is what your life is like. It's like a breath. It's vanity. Now throughout the book, the preacher is also going to show that not only our lives are like this, but also everything in this world. Everything in this world is fleeting and it is passing away. Again and again, we're going to see the preacher either by an example that he himself has experienced in his life or something he has considered in his wisdom. He's going to say, I considered something like toil or the pleasures of life, work itself, He's going to stop and He's going to ask a question. He's going to say, what gain does man have in all his toil? The implied answer in verse 3, that's where that question comes from, is nothing. There is no gain in this world. Now He doesn't mean that there's no gain whatsoever. What He's talking about is there's no lasting gain. Because when you go to work... You gain a check, right? You gain money. And in this world, you can gain possessions. But in reality, the truth of the matter is that again, it's like that. You have it one moment and then it just, it slips from your hands. You know, you can't, you, no matter how hard you try to grasp it, it's going to leave you. It's going to be gone. It's like a breath. And if you are seeking that type of gain, then you're going to be like the man that I just illustrated, grasping for the wind, grasping for the puff of smoke that your life really is. So he means to show you that your life is like a breath and everything in it is like a breath. There's no lasting gain. And we're going to consider that question in verse 3 more next week. Again, David Gibson in his book, he says the motto of the preacher is gift. 
not gain. And he says it should be your motto as well. You should adopt the motto that your life is a gift and it's not gain. Now what does he mean by that? Gift, not gain. He means to show, and as the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is going to show, that when you see your life as a gift, you truly see how to enjoy it. Now how do we... How do we attain to that? How do we see life as a gift and not as gain? Well, at the end of the book, he says, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So that's the secret of living life well. That's the secret of living your life as a gift and not as gain. But you and I both know that we can't do that. We can't fear God and keep His commandments as we are called to. So what are we supposed to do? How are we to read this book in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? You know, Because every book that we read in, especially in the Old Testament, we are to be seeing Christ shining forth, right? So how do we see Jesus shine forth in Ecclesiastes? Well, remember... Solomon uses the word Kohelet to bring about the picture of a pastor and his people. Well, Jesus Christ is the true Kohelet. He is the true gatherer, collector, assembler of the people of God. He is the true shepherd. He is God's true shepherd who shepherds the people of God. He not only shepherds them with His words, but He also shepherds them with His very life. And we see that example in His life and ministry. Jesus Christ not only just preached the Word of God, but He lived it. And He lived it on your behalf. He led by example and by His accomplishments the people of God into the green pasture of God, you could say. Jesus Christ is the true Kohelet. He is the true shepherd of God's people. Now also as we read through this book, Jesus Christ is also the truly wise man. All of the wisdom that we're going to see in this book, Jesus Christ has lived it perfectly. If you want to see the wisdom of Solomon on display, look at Jesus. In Jesus' life, He had more joy and lived His life as a gift more than anybody else could, ever. He truly saw His life as a gift from the Lord and lived it in light of that. So Jesus Christ is the truly wise man. As He says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is condemning the unbelief of His day. And He says, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus Christ is the truly wise man. And again, we saw how under King Solomon's reign, the people of Israel saw the most prosperity because of God's gift to Solomon. Well, Jesus Christ is the true King. 
The people of God experience true blessing. They experience true joy and experience true and lasting gain when they seek the wisdom of Christ. Because He not only just preaches it to them, but He enables them to live it through His life, His death, and His resurrection. Also, as we read through this book, we're going to see the tragic reality of sin and the fall. Again, in light of being in east of Eden, living east of Eden in this broken world. Well, Jesus Christ is the one who mends all of that. He's the one who creates the new and perfect world. He's the one who ushers that in. Jesus Christ is the one who restores the tragic reality of the fall, sin, and all of the horrible things that happen in light of it. He is the one who restores all of that. And that's just some of the ways that we're going to again and again see Jesus Christ shine forth. Now the last thing that I want to turn your attention to before we close and pray together. When we read through this book, we're going to read words that literally just escape our understanding. And that's what makes this book so hard. Solomon, the preacher, he uses words that are not only meant to have you hear him. He uses words that are meant to grab all of your senses. He uses words of wisdom. That's what this book is. It's wisdom literature and it's meant to be read in light of that. He uses proverbs. He uses poetry. He uses reflections. All of these things are meant to grab all of your senses. He wants you to see this. He wants you to feel it. He wants to put the tragic reality of the fall before you in a way that you cannot escape it. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at this colorful book, I guess you could say. Because Solomon himself, at the end of the book, he says, he, it says the, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Chapter 12, verse 10. Words of delight. Solomon seeks to take the gift of language and use it to shepherd the people of God into true and lasting joy. So that is what we have to look forward to as we consider this wonderful, this magnificent, and at the same time, very hard book. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You and... Oh, how we thank You for Your Word. Yes, it is hard to understand. It is so hard. I mean, not only do we read words that are difficult to understand, but we're also reading a book that is far, far older than we are and written in a different time frame. So we ask that You would again and again as we look at Ecclesiastes, come and help us. That You would help us to understand. That You would help us to understand the tragic reality of sin and death that we live in. But in the midst of all of this, may we see Jesus Christ shining forth in glory. May we heed the words of the preacher. And may we more so heed the words of the true preacher, which is Jesus Christ Himself. 
Father, again, I thank you for the people of God. I thank you for gathering us together. And I ask that you would use your word to strengthen them, to remind them again of reality, the world in which we live, and that they would go to Christ and seek his face to find comfort and joy and lasting gain in him. In Christ's name we pray.